Uh, I love hearing all the voices. Sometimes we forget that fellowship with one another is an act of worship to the Lord. It says, greet one another. We don't greet one another with a kiss. We leave that part out. But we do greet one another with a handshake and with fellowship with one another. We, we embed that into our service uh, to ensure that we do that. And you guys do such a good job with that. I want to uh, introduce our speaker uh, um, uh, this morning. His name is Dan Dumas. He's up here in the front. He is a, a friend of mine. I've known Dan since 2002 when I started uh, at the Master's Seminary to get my seminary education. And uh, immediately Dan um, brought me in to, to help him with some of the things he had going on with the conferences. Uh, he was uh, my Sunday school teacher uh, as well for my wife and I in, in, our, in our first when we were first newly married. Um, Dan is also someone I've been to. I shared with the, with the men this week. I've been into his office and asked for counsel and advice. Uh, Dan loves the local church. Dan loves scripture. He loves uh, being with men as well. And uh, he loves to teach the Bible. And, and you'll see this morning that Dan has a unique ability to exposit Scripture and then, then leave us with some tangible, practical, right now, let's get this done application. And so, Dan, why don't you come up and, and teach us uh, the word this morning? My fan's turning on me. <laughs> Good morning. Why are you guys so quiet? I haven't bitten anybody in six months. Six months, so you should be ready to go. Um, just, yeah, the guys kissing. I have been in a culture um, where the men kiss the other men on the lips. That was not fun. <laughs> it was the hardest 14 days of my life. I was always giving them the right hand of fellowship. Like, you know. So there is cultures uh, like that. So that, that's, uh, that's super crazy. Well, uh, it's been a joy to be uh, with the men uh, this weekend. We've covered a lot of ground. I'm super proud of them and how they responded uh, to the Word of God and hearing the Word of God and then applying the Word of God. So wives, if, if, uh, if they come home a little rough, you let me know. We'll go after them and kind of just call us and text Joe, my husband's crazy, and you know, we'll help him and shepherd him and get on to him for you. If he didn't come back better husband or a better man, we, we hope he would have. Um, Job, uh, we covered Job 1. Uh, spiritual ruggedness. We looked at Psalm 90, which we kind of sang this morning on being highly intentional as leaders from the life of Moses. We, we looked at James as being first responders and leading out in the local church as men. So we had a fantastic weekend and uh, I'm just like grateful for them. I'm grateful for you this morning. Glad you're here and glad we get to sit under the word of God together. If you would take a copy of God's word, join me in Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 to 16. Uh, this morning. And uh, as you're making your way there, I'm going to give you a little bit of context and setup. But I want to begin by asking you a question What does sodium chloride and electromagnetic radiation have to do with the gospel? Sodium chloride, salt, and then electromagnetic radiation, light. These are the two metaphors that Jesus used to define our mission. This weekend, we talked to the men about having a personal mission statement, a single sentence of why they are here, why they are uniquely here. This is why we are corporately here. This is why we exist. This is our mission, what it means to live on mission corporately as a local church in Bellevue, Seattle, and beyond, okay? So that's what we're about to look at. I've entitled our time this morning, 
being a salty, well-lit church, being a salty, well-lit church, salt and light are the two metaphors that Jesus, as we hear from Jesus himself today in the finest sermon he ever preached, gave us to help us grapple with our mission. Let me read the text, and then I'm going to give you five pieces of context and a couple of points, and we'll stick a landing, okay? Sound good? You ready to get busy? Take a look at the text. Jesus says, you are the, light, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Actually, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Then he says, you're the light of the world. Not just Palestine, the whole world. You're the light of the world, a city. It's like a city that, on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people actually light a lamp and put it under a shade or a basket on a stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Like I said, this is Jesus' finest sermon. 111 verses, 50 imperatives, 230 verbs. This is a sermon about action, and that's one of the things we challenged the men this weekend. Hey, be a man of action. Be a doer of the word, not just a hearer, right? So this is a sermon all about action, all about taking action and fulfilling your responsibility. Let me give you the flow up front so you can kind of write it in your margin or write it down on a piece of paper, and then we'll just fill it in with color and commentary, okay? First, the flow. There are two facts here. You are salt, and you are light. There are two observation, observations that Jesus makes. He says, if you lose your saltiness, you'll actually become useless. And if you hide your light, that's kind of ridiculous. That's basically what he's going to say. And then there's one imperative. So let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Third piece of context. Notice what's in juxtaposition. Anytime you interpret scripture, you want to know what's before and after, right? Kind of see. Otherwise, you can have a tendency. You get sloppy in your interpretation, and you'll pull stuff out of context. I want you to see it in its context, because this is Jesus' finest sermon. And he opens with an introduction, and the introduction is a profound picture of a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's called the Beatitudes. I'm sure you've heard of the Beatitudes. But look before here, between verses 2 and verse 12. There's a list of Beatitudes, which paint in toto, it paints a picture of a disciple of, of Jesus Christ. It's our identity. And the reason Jesus connects our mission to our identity is because you can't do 13 to 16. You can't implement 13 to 16 if you're not being 2 to 12. So you have to have the Beatitudes, you have to be locked down, you have to be in Christ and have this profound picture of what a true disciple is so that this is what a disciple does. So this is what a disciple is, 2 to 12, 13 to 16. This is what we do. This is our mission. This is our raison d'etre as a body, as a group of people. 
as men. I love it too, because tucked in there are all these little profound, pithy statements, like this one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And you gotta unpack that, and that's like a whole sermon unto itself. But when it applies to 13 to 16, that means when you're proclaiming Christ and you're being salt and light, it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread, right? We're, we're, a, we're a hospital for sinners, not a hotel for saints. Like we, we have been blessed. We have heard the word of God. We have been transformed by the gospel. Therefore, we tell other people about the gospel and watch them get, you know, get their lives changed. But we don't do it with harshness we're not weird and creepy. We're not invasive and mean. You know, we're just saying, hey, this is where the bread is. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And, and, and it's important for us to see it, and it's important to connect the two together. It's really hard. It's nay, impossible to do 13 to 16 if you're not doing 2 to 12, okay? So look at it in its toto. Read the Beatitudes later this afternoon after the game, and read the Beatitudes, and then connect all of it together. Fourth piece of context. Here's the deal. There are no secret Christians. There are no secret Christians. You are called as a responsibility, because of your identity in Christ, as a responsibility, you're called to be salt and light. You're, you're left here for a reason. If it was just to become a Christian... He'd give you a three-day long weekend, Labor Day. You'd go home. You'd tell your family about Christ. And adios, that's Spanish, adios, you're gone. And you're going on to heaven. But no, he leaves you here for a purpose. What's that purpose? You have to ask that. What am I, what am I supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be doing? It's salt and light. That's exactly what we're called to do. That's what it means to live on mission. And it's not done in isolation. They're not invisible Christians you, you display salt, you display the light, right? So you slow the, the corruption and you push back the darkness. These are the two principles that Jesus wants us to wrangle with. And so you're here to proclaim Christ. There are no secret Christians. People should never go, ah, I didn't know you go to church. Ah, I didn't know you love the Lord. It should be blatantly obvious in the workplace, in your community, when you're out to eat, everywhere you go, they just know, hey, that's a Christian. Look, they're solid by your good works. You know, you, you're, you put Christ on display wherever you are. Fifth tidbit, and then we'll get busy. This is the twofold mission of every Christian. And it's to slow the decay and push back the darkness. Those are the two principles. This isn't about you. You're here for a reason, and it's not a self-fulfillment reason. It is for the gospel of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dark and decaying world that's all around us, right? We're to live on mission, and here's the deal. There's no plan B. You are plan A. You are plan A. You are the plan that God put in place 2,000 years ago that you would be in your community and at your work and wherever you go, that you would be the salt and you would be the light. It's also the heart of Jesus. Luke 19, 10, he said, I come to seek and to save that which is lost. If he's doing that and we're in Christ and we're in the family, then that's what we are to be about. We're to, 
We're to have influence in our city, influence in our community, influence in our HOA, and we're to live boldly on mission. So I want to call your attention to the first principle, and let's get into it. It is this. You are called to slow the decay. Look at the statement. You are emphatically, no question, not elective. You are salt. You're salt of the whole earth, not just Bellevue, not just Yakima, not just wherever you live. You're the whole earth. You're the slow the decay. Let me make a couple comments about this, and then I'll explain why Jesus uses these two metaphors. The first is this. This responsibility is not for the pros. It's not just for Jonah, and it's not just for Joey or Shay or Joel. I guess you have to have a J in your name to be an elder. Joel. Like, it's not just, like, it's for all of us, right? It's not for the elite Christians and certain Christians. It's comprehensive for all of us. This is all of our responsibility. All the men, all the women, all the teenagers. It's our responsibility, okay? And it wasn't for the pros. Remember what Jesus did. He chose 12 ordinary men to change the world. You're sitting here today because of 12, some of them fishermen, some of them tax collectors, just some crazy dudes, like roughneck, crazy dudes who have been transformed by the gospel and were faithful to tell other people and to proclaim Christ, right? So that, you are plan A. It's not for the pros that have been to school and seminary, and we talk about that and we value that. It's important, but it's, this is what Jesus is talking about in the intro to this sermon, his finest sermon he ever preached. He said, this is for all of us. Comprehension, you are the salt of the earth. Second piece of information I want you to have is this. Because it's in the text, you can do it. Like, it's your responsibility, but you can also do it. It's spirit-enabled, right? He's not asking you to do it on yourself. He's not asking you to muster up boldness. He's saying, look, you got to know the gospel, and you tell your neighbors. You tell everybody you come into and in, in, encounter with about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so it's possible. It's not like a, a mission you can never accomplish. It's a mission you can do, and it's a mission you should be doing is what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. And so he's sitting on a hill. It's a beautiful spring day. The poppies are, are blooming. It's unbelievable. And he sits down and he preaches 111 verses and says, this is what you guys got to be about. This is ground zero. This is how you change the world. And it's still true today here this morning for each of us. And so it's a statement of fact. You are salt. We're to be salty believers why? Because the world, since Genesis 3, is in a state of decomposition or decay. It goes from bad to worse, as 1 Timothy 3.15 says. It's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. It's only going to be more desalination, more decay, more darkness. Like, and we'll cover what that is in a second. But all of that is in play. And it's only going to get worse and worse, from bad to worse. And it's in a constant flux or a constant state of decomposition. And so sin, and it putrefies. And it gets harder and it gets harder and harder. But I love that, right? I love the fact that that's our calling. Like when it gets hard, it's always been the case when the church gets pressured and it gets hard and there's decay and putrefaction and a foul aroma from the culture, 
That's when we come alive. That's when we're at our best. We're not good as a church when it's soft and easy. That's just all through church history. It's always when it's hard, difficult, putrefying, messy. That's when we shine. That's when we we slow the darkness. And so the world, apart from Christ, continues to rot and continues to return and be foul and offensive, and it will continue to do that. And then we're called, as Jesus just said, to retard that, to slow that corruption, right? And his plan is this room. You are his plan to slow the corruption that will happen in this world. And so he says, church, you're the, you're the salt, the sodium chloride of the whole earth. Why this metaphor? Well, it's hard for us to understand. I think it's fair, right? When, when I think of salt, I'm thinking McDonald's french fries, right? The best french fry in the world. Nobody, in and out, they don't. It's just, McDonald's, you don't eat anything else there. You'll destroy yourself from inside to out. Um, but the fries are spectacular. When they're hot and they're already salted, and then I add more salt, right? Jesus is not saying you're, you're going to be the condiment of the world, it's not what he's talking about. What the problem was is the first century. So we've got to go back and kind of breathe in the dusty streets of Palestine and kind of get the smells and the open sewers going and no refrigeration. They didn't have refrigerators. That's why Jesus said, you live by your daily bread. You went daily to the market. You went daily and got your food. You went daily and there was no preservative. There was nothing to slow the decay. And so if you bought a lot of food, you went to Costco in the first century and loaded up you know, with everything there, then it would, it would decompose. It would be a problem and you couldn't do that. So the, they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have modern convenience that we have. And so we needed salt. And that salt became a preservative to keep things from decaying and keep meat from spoiling. Salt was valuable. So when he picked a metaphor as a good preacher, he pulls a metaphor off the shelf and says, let me help you with your vision of your mission. It's, you gotta be the salt of the earth. They knew exactly. Salt was extremely valuable. As a matter of fact, um, salt was, uh, you were paid if you were a soldier, if you were in the military during this time and honored the king's court, you would be paid in salt. It was that valuable. It was almost like currency. And it's really been true all the way up to modern history where now it's very accessible. But we say it all the time. You know, we would say if a guy's not doing his job, he's not worth his salt, right? If you go back to Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, the painting, look at it, Google it this afternoon. And in front of Judas Iscariot, you'll see a tipped over salt shaker. It was painted in there by Leonardo because of the high value of what he's about to do to destroy Jesus. It was shameful and he wanted to see. You would never tip over a salt shaker. You'd be wasting the salt and it was valuable commodity. You would never do that. And this Judas Iscariot's wasting his life by selling out his Lord and Savior. And so you see these pictures, right? We, today we talk about things like watch your salt intake. We're, ours is all on the medical side and on the flavor side. That's not what Jesus was talking about. It's not what he was saying. And so he says, listen, you need to be the salt of the earth. There's a number of explanations that could be true. 
that are true, but they're not in this text. For example, it could be true that we are called to enhance the flavor, right? We're called to be a tasteful spice to the world, make Christ attractive by how we live if we're living like the text says we live. And, and that's possible, and it's true. It's just not what Jesus meant. Okay? There's a second possibility. It, salt creates thirst. And you could say, well, we're to create thirst in unbelievers and they're going to want Jesus and they're going to want more of him and it's going to create this internal thirst and they'll come. It's true, right? But it's not in the passage. It's not what this text says. When he says, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying you are to preserve. You're to slow the decay. So we're slowing the decay and we're pushing back the darkness. All of them are possible explanations, but they're just not in the text. Salt's primary function in the first century and in this illustration is to slow the decomposition and to preserve the meat, right? It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's Christ working to slow the darkness and slow the decay. And that's why you need authentic disciples in 2 to 12, living it out, walking the walk, talking the talk. When you have that, you have this, it's, it's like Christ is rubbing into the secular culture this salt that's slowing down the decomposition. It's always been true of believers. We are the ones that talk about a Judeo-Christian work ethic, for example. We're the ones that say, you ought to work hard. And, and you do that because of the gospel, right? Work was pre-fall, Work's a part of what you're called to do. The men know that. This is, we're, we're built for work. We're supposed to work. There's joy in work. So it's a part of the deal. So we're the ones as Christians, we promote, we promote hard work. We promote truth-telling. We call out the liar. We call sin, sin. That's not right. You can't do that. You can't read those books in school. Those books are trash. And we stand up as tiger moms and you go at the school boards and say, hey, don't do that. You know, we always are the ones who are stopping the decay, slowing it down. Now, we know ultimately, because we've read the whole story in Revelation, it's going to ultimately combust. It's ultimately going to come to an end. But in the process, your calling, your responsibility while you're here in this life and in this moment, you're called to be the salt of the earth. You fight, we fight crime. We believe in punishing crime. Right? We prize integrity. We believe in character and not just competency. And so what we become in this salt analogy and metaphor, we quicken the conscience of everyone around us. They ought to, people ought to come in contact with you and go, man, she stands for truth. She does what's right. She's predictable. Like she, she cares about others. She doesn't care just about herself. All of that is what it means to be salt and to to retard the corruption that's in this world. We are the world's preservative. We're the living conscience for the Lord Jesus Christ. But if the salt gets desalted or desalinated, it's a problem. And I think that's where a lot of the church is today, right? They're dim and desalted. They're not bold as lions like Proverbs 28, 1 says. They don't understand their saltiness. And if it loses its essential property, look at part B of verse 13. How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And you would see on a regular basis if you were heading off to school 
or going into the market to, 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 to get a pork chop or whatever you're going to get, you would see people coming out on those streets, not in the vegetated plants, but on the streets, and they would be throwing out the salt that was desalted. It had no more impact. He said, it's useless. And so it was a regular occurrence to be going by someone's house and you'd get thrown some salt out in the dusty streets of Palestine. They wouldn't put it on the plants because the gypsum and all that mixed together, it's a pretty stable compound, but when it gets desalinated, it gets messy. And so they just run it into the dirt and make hard pack roads out of the excess salt because it was so valuable, such a great commodity. And he's saying, look, just like people throw out their salt when it's useless, You've got a calling. You have a responsibility. You know, you're called to, to make an impact, right? To, to stop this decay that's going on or don't become useless. If, if the salt loses its saltiness and loses its property, then it, it becomes entirely ineffective and there's dilution and it's, it, it's, it's, it's not good. It's not good for anything or anybody. We lose our efficacy in our mission. And we get mission drift and we get off mission and we, all these things come racing into our lives and man, it's a hot mess. And that's why all through history they've said, hey, that soldier, he's not performing up to par. He isn't worth his salt. That's why that's there, right? For that very reason, we still use that kind of language today. And so we're responsible to slow the world's continual corruption by influencing people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to be a salty community of believers here in Bellevue, Seattle, and to the uttermost parts of the world. That's the, that's the topography and geography in the text, right? All the way to the ends of the earth. You know, that should be enough. I should be able to hammer down, got a few minutes left, and say, being salty is enough to get your attention. It ought to get your attention, right? I mean, it's fair. It gets my attention, man. I, I hate when I'm desalinated. I hate when I've lost my efficacy and I'm not bold in my, my, my evangelism and sharing with my neighbors. I, that's enough. But he doesn't. He goes on. He says, not only that, two sides of the same coin. Second metaphor. He says, you're also the light of the world. You're the light of the world. Same purpose, we're to illumine, we're to push back darkness. Darkness is anything evil. Could be a lie, could be a white lie, could be corruption, could be cooking the books, could be anything in, in everything could be in this category of darkness. And we love the light, right? And we know from John 3 that men love the darkness. It's not that they just like, oh, there's darkness over there. They actually run to darkness. They're actually bent towards darkness. They actually want darkness, right? That's what John 3, 19 says. They're intentional. Men love darkness rather than light. And so the world is shrouded in thick, black, spiritual darkness. And I love that because you know what the Lord does in his kindness and goodness? He drops a light. He drops a church right in the midst of all the darkness. Right out, just outside the gates of hell, bang, he puts a church. Isn't that awesome? And says, hey, guess what? You guys are called to slow the decay and push back the darkness. This is how you live in such a way that people go, man, I need God. I want what she has. I want what he has. That guy's on fire. I want the peace. I want joy in spite of my circumstances. I, there's something missing in my life. I want this, right? Can you imagine a world without light? 
They could. They did. I even think of Martin Luther and all the reformers who wrote tomes. I mean, when I say tomes, big books, multiple layers, multiple books that we labor to get through in our training just to get through them. And they would take them by candlelight and handwrite them with a quill, you know, and uh, some homemade ink. And they would write these massive volumes and you just go, wow, just productive without power. Yet we are unproductive with the gospel with all of the resources, will all the light. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely crazy. Light was significant. It was significant for a community. It was significant for a city. And that's why he says, look at the text, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Well, in the first century, they would put a city on a hill. He's going to talk about a lamp and a city. City on a hill for two reasons. One for direction. So you are on a long trip, right? You're coming from Canada to Seattle. Like, how do I get there? You don't have nav. You know, you, you don't have all these modern conveniences. You would look, and off in the distance, you'd see the lights. They would light that castle, and they'd put it on the hill, and it would be directional. The second thing and significant thing about a city on a hill was protection. Bad things happen, right? You, you want to keep some people in the city. You want to keep some people out of the city. And so you would build a city up on a hill. All your ancient cities, if you go to them, if you travel at all, you go to Europe, my favorite city uh, on a hill is Tauramina in Sicily. All of them are high points. You can see them for a great ways off, and they're protected. It's a, it's a defensive posture as a city that in order for the enemy to come, they've got to climb that hill. Typically, it would be water or a moat around them, right? That's just what Jesus is saying. You know, he's saying you've you got to be like a, a city on a hill that can be seen directionally. It's, it's safe. It's protecting. Um, it's visible for miles Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the noonday glowing brilliant sun. We're like the moon who has no source of light itself, but radiates from the sun in our current culture, in our current community. He's ordained you the message and the means, right? And to be honest, some people, you're the only light they're ever going to see. I can't go to your job. This may be my pulpit. Your pulpit's a laptop. Your pulpit's coding. Your pulpit's engineering. Whatever it is, I can't go to your job. You are strategically placed in your career, in the marketplace, to be light and salt. And I think you won't disdain your job so much, fellas, if you see your job as a mission field rather than a place to get a paycheck. When you're there, like God's placed me here to win my cube mate or win my you know, nurses on the floor, uh, to, to win my real estate team. Whatever it is you do, whatever it is, you're strategically placed there to be salt and, and light to the world. He says you're like... You're supposed to be like a city on a hill, seen far away, protected, rocking it, killing it. Second thing, he says, not only are you a city on a hill, but look what he says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but instead on a stand and gives light to the whole house. Well, picture our first century house. No AC, no windows. Oil for an oil lamp would be extremely valuable. As a matter of fact, when the Proverbs, when the 
When Solomon describes the Proverbs 31 woman, what she's commended for is what? Keeping the oil lamps full. It's one of her industrious, she takes care of her home. She, she makes sure everything's cared for and they have light. You would be absolutely crazy trained if you were to light a lamp and then put a shade on it. Nobody does that in the first century. You would put it in a prominent place, right in the middle of, of, of the room, and it would light the whole room so you could have a meal together, and you could play Uno at night and do things like that in the first century. Like, you have to have, you have to have light. You'd be ridiculous. What we do today, I go in, I don't know, you turn your lights on. I go, Alexa, I know this gal, Alexa. And she comes, and my lights come on. I'm like, this is sweet, you know? And, and then all of our house, there's mood lamps. My wife's got, it's like crazy. And there's mood lamps and shades, not in that first century, you wouldn't do that. You'd have one light, you'd have one lamp, you'd barely have enough oil, you'd probably do it, you know, every other night you'd light it to have some light, you know, to, to play Uno and different things. You, would, you just would not have access to that. And so when he says, listen, you're like a city on a hill or a brilliantly lit light in the center of the room, please, if you're dim in the faith and you're not brilliantly shining, then stop, Jesus says, and shine like that light would be on the lampstand like it should be and do not put a basket over it. Are you lost your mind? But we do it, don't we? I do it sometimes. Shrink back. Easier not to say anything, right? Easier not to, to talk about Christ. No, we're to strategically see where God has uniquely, sovereignly placed us and we are to shine brilliantly. This is what it means. We reveal the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We live on mission. We, we push back the darkness by how we live. We're to be attractive. Look what he says there. In the same way, at the end of, look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your kalas works your good works, you're crushing it, and give glory to your Father in heaven. It's not just living, it's lips too. I need you speaking and living and backing up what you say and knowing the gospel and presenting the gospel and you start pushing back, you start pushing back the darkness and everyone will know, oh, that's the city on the hill. There's Tower Mina, there it is off 100 miles away, I can see it. They can see your life, they'll know, oh, that's, if you wanna know what it looks, you want Jesus looks like and having Jesus in your life, you look at you guys. And you're living in such a way they're going, man, I want, I want what Jason has. I want, you know, I want what, what Mary has. I, I want what Aaron has because they're full of Christ and the, that, that, that emptiness in their hearts cannot be filled with anything else but Christ. And so we brilliantly shine and we push back the prevailing intense darkness. That's what we do. That's why I said in the beginning, there are no secret Christians. Are you desalted? Are you dim? I'm not sure. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this on one Sunday night. He said, we find, if we find in ourselves a tendency to put the light under a basket, we must begin to examine ourselves and make sure that it really, really is light. So if you're not shining and you're desalinated, you will have every cause to wonder, have you ever experienced the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? But if you're in Christ and you're doing two to 12, this is your mission. 
Your identity and your responsibility is to be salt and light and to brilliantly and radiantly signal to everyone around you you're a believer. Nobody's going to go, oh, I didn't know she was a believer. Oh, I didn't know he, he goes to church. If they show up here as visitors, oh, I didn't know. You know, I didn't know they were, they, they will know. They'll know. And you're strategically placed as a lamp in places all over the city that I could never get to, that Joey can't get to, that Jonah can't get to, that Joel can't get to all the places he'd like to get. We'd all like to do that, but this isn't for the pros. You are plan A. There is no plan B. It's just straight up ordinary people, right? And proclaiming an extraordinary gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, it was June 22nd, 1986. And um, I'm in the Navy. I grew up as a PK, a pagan's kid. I didn't grow up in church. And I'm in the United States Navy, flying with a search and rescue team in Jacksonville, Florida. I go to the beach because that's what you do in the Navy when Top Gun comes out. The original OG Top Gun came out May 10th, 1986. Some of you old guys should know that. And I was mimicking, a kind of a poser, you know. I had the flight suit, I had the motorcycle, I had about 50 pounds less. You know, I was playing volleyball at the beach and two girls walked by. My roommate and I said, whoa, let's go talk to those girls. So we went over there, approached the girls. And uh, we had motives. They had motives. They were in Christ. They were salty, well-lit Christians. And they said, no, I'm not going to do that, but I'll tell you what we will do. And they shared Jesus with you. And the reason I'm standing before you today is because of two faithful, ordinary Christian girls who were bold as lions, Proverbs 28.1, who said, oh, we're going to be salt and light. Didn't even come to the beach for that reason. They probably came just to have a great Saturday at the beach, which is normal, right? And here comes two squids in the Navy, two crazy guys. And here I am today preaching before you, just like you're here, because someone was bold enough to be salt and light in your life. And that's why you're here. And you're sitting under the influence of the word of God. Folks, this is our mission. This is what we're called to, to be salt and light. Now, let me give you a little couple closing tips, okay? Some things you can do. If you've been desalting or a little bit dim, it's okay. There's grace, right, in the gospel, right? We're, a, we're not a hotel for saints. We're a hospital for sinners. We all come through those doors limping, one eye gone, jacked up. I'm like, you look up jacked up in Wikipedia and you'll see my picture there. Trust me. I am the most jacked up person, just like the apostle Paul. I'm the chief of sinners here. I'm the worst. I know I'm the worst sinner in the room. So that's what we do. So let me help you a little bit. First, be, be prayerful. So what I do is I take a three by five card and I list five people, 10 people, whatever is in your life that you want to see become a Christian. My crazy neighbor, he won't listen to this, I hope. My crazy neighbor, he's just, Dennis is back crazy. But I'm just convinced he's going to get saved. You know what I'm saying? I just like, I love him incessantly. Like, it drives him mad. He keeps moving the lot line just to jack with me. I'm convinced, you know, I'm like, yes. you know, it's a legal document, you know, and uh so anyway, I, I've got this list and I'm praying through it. You know why? Because when I pray about it in the morning and then I bump into Dennis in the afternoon, guess what? My heart's for his soul. You know, we live in comfort. 
like, like Spurgeon said, we live in comfort and men are dying and going to hell. We have to kind of shake ourselves up a little bit. So when you pray, you know, it's, then, you, then you, you will actually tease out some of those opportunities. You look for opportunities. So be prayerful. Make yourself a card, sticky note, tattoo them. Uh, my buddy, my good friend, one of my best friends, he has this old tree in his yard, and he's got everyone's name etched into the tree. You may not do that up here in Seattle. People may freak out, but, <laughs> but you can do it. I'll give you permission. Um, second, be bold. Get around unbelievers. Do not go to a Christian coffee shop. Don't play Christian basketball. Don't be on the Christian golf team. Go to them. The Bible says go, right? The Great Commission, go, not come, go. You go to them. Don't use Christian Knitting Alliance. Don't, you know, whatever you do, don't, don't go to Christian cooks. No, go to where the pagans are. That's what they accuse Jesus of. He's always having dinner with the sinners. Yeah, that's because he's salt and light. He wrote it. This is his best sermon, like, this point two of the best sermon that's ever preached in history, like, so it's okay. I don't care if you, you know, women gather together next Saturday. Don't skip the women's event. That's not what I'm saying. Don't get weird. I'm just saying, like, if we have a chance that I find that I have the, the meanest dry cleaner in the city, you know, I got the, 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 the stuffy coffee shop because I want to be salt and light, you know, and be an example uh, to them. So be bold. And third, be ready. First Peter 3.15. Be ready to give an answer. So you got to know your theology, you got to know a little bit about Christ, and then you got to have your lines kind of thought through. You can write this stuff down. I fly a lot and travel a lot. Not proud of that. Um, When they give you a handwritten note thanking you for flying, you probably know you're neglecting your family. That's me. And um, so, like, I I can get into a conversation on a plane with ease. You know, they'll be, they'll plop down the seat. I was like, hey, Want to hear a story about a really bad guy? And they're kind of like, yeah, I kind of do. I was like, I got a good one. That's where I'm going. My testimony. I just share my testimony, and then I go, bang, that's me. Ah, you know, and, you know, so I'm just saying, like, you can do this. You know, you just start talking about the gospel, and the God will give you the words to share and to, and to, and to speak. But be ready. Be bold. Be prayerful. You can do this. You have to do it. It's your responsibility. We're not hammering down on you. We're just saying, like, this isn't Joey's job. This isn't Jonah's job or Joel's job. Yeah, they're going to be on fire doing it too with you, right? But it's our job. It's how it works. That's what Jesus' plan was from the beginning. It was the master's plan on reaching the world by proclaiming the gospel. So are you going to be salty? And are you going to be light? Are you going to slow the decay and push back the darkness. That's why you're here. If you ever wondered, why am I here? It's not to honor Microsoft. They're not even coming to your funeral. They're not going to be there. They just won't. They love you. They provide for you. But that's not. You're there for a mission. You're on mission when you go to the office, right? When you're coding, you're coding the gospel. Just put it in every bit of code you got. Right? Let's go. Let's do this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this faithful church, and I pray that you would help us to be strong evangelists, reach our community here in Bellevue and beyond in Seattle, and really to the uttermost parts of the world. You've been good to us this weekend. You've, you've ministered the word to us this weekend, Lord. 
And now this installment with Jesus speaking into our lives, we're extremely grateful. And I pray that you'd help us to all be, starting with myself, salt and light. In your name I pray, amen.